I spent a lot of time fighting anti-Semitism online when I had my former page that unfortunately got taken down by anti-Semites. And I realized that I was shaping who I was based on how other people perceive me. And that's just not, that to me, that's like the opposite of pride, right? That I don't need to shape how I feel or connect to being a Jew based on how other people talk about me. Clarissa Marks, and you are listening to On Wandering, a monthly podcast that explores the nuance and complexities of Jewish identity. Today in the show, we're talking to Yasmin Esther. Yasmin is a community educator and a Bukharan, Ashkenazi, and Mizrahi Jew. She's made it her mission to inform Jews and non-Jews alike about Jewish politics and culture. With over 16,000 followers on Instagram, Yasmin combats misconceptions and erasure of Jewish customs and history. And she often shares about overlooked parts of her multifaceted cultural background. Yasmin also has Black family members, and her educational work incorporates confronting anti-Blackness and racism. Before we hear the interview, I have a quick announcement. On Wondering, we'll be taking a summer break starting in July. I think all of us in the Northern Hemisphere are looking forward to spending some time outside. If you're planning a summer road trip or outdoor activities and you need something to listen to, I definitely recommend taking a look through our back catalog. I'll make sure to include some recommended episodes in the show notes and on my Instagram page, but really, they're all great. You can't go wrong. So check it out. And make sure you're subscribed so that you get the new episode as soon as it's released in the fall. And now, here's my conversation with Yasmin Esther. Well, thank you so much for being here. My first question for you is, how was being Jewish part of your life growing up? Um... It wasn't really. Mm. Um, so even though both my parents are Jewish, um, because I stopped seeing my biological father when I was about 12, um, and my mom is extremely secular, like, you know, it really wasn't present in my household. However, even before I stopped seeing my biological father, um, for him, his identity was much more strongly tied to being Israeli than being mm. Jewish. So I grew up just knowing I was Israeli um, not even really realizing that I was Jewish until I was much older. Everything for me was much more based around my Israeli identity than my Jewish identity. Um, and because my mother's family was, you know, they're American, they've been here much longer. My dad only came in the seventies. Um, and they were really assimilated, you know, into kind of like non-Jewish or secular culture. It just wasn't a big thing. Like I knew my mom had a very Jewish last name and, you know, she has her Jewish nose, but it just was never a discussion. Like my mom speaks fluent Hebrew, but I never heard her speak a word. Um, Went to yeshiva her whole life, but she never talked about it. Whereas my biological father, everything was completely centered around Israeli history, Israeli culture, Israeli identity, Israeli pride. Um, I, I don't even think I've ever heard him say the word Jewish till I was an adult, to be honest. Wow. Yeah. Had you ever been to Israel? Yeah, as a kid, um, many times because my grandparents, who are both um, 
passed away now. They live there. My aunts, all my cousins, pretty much all of my father's family lives in Israel. Um, I do have some that live here, but um, most of them all live there. So as a kid, I was there, you know, a lot. Um, but after a certain age, I wasn't allowed to go anymore because unfortunately my, there was a fear that my father would not bring me back to the States mm. if, if I went because it was a pretty nasty divorce. So, um, but I had gone as a kid. So I have like tons of pictures um, in Israel. You know, it was like even, I think I was like six months old um, at the wall in my stroller. So, you know, a lot of very, very early childhood memories. Wow. So you went to Israel a lot as a child, but were the rest of your family, did they also have this attitude of we're Israeli? We don't talk about being Jewish. We talk about being Israeli. Um, honestly, I can't remember anyone else. Um, but my grandparents really they didn't speak English. They only spoke Hebrew. Um, and my grandfather spoke some, you know, spoke Arabic. Um, mm. but I don't remember it ever being a conversation. Like when they'd come over, even before I stopped seeing my biological father, everything, you know, if like my grandmother came and she was, um, she'd cook, right. So she'd make like baklava from scratch and her grape leaves. And then we would do Shabbat, but I don't recall ever hearing the word Jewish ever. Wow. Like, if you ask my father how he identified back then, I just remember him saying Israeli and Sephardic. So back then Mizrahi Jews just used the word Sephardic because that was the only, that was the only, um, it really like, word we had to lump us all in so mm-hmm. grew up just identifying as Sephardi I actually didn't even know what Ashkenazi was until I was like a young adult because everything was really centered around me being Sephardic and Israeli especially because I don't look anything like my mother's family they're all like very fair skin green eyes I mean beautiful but very very white passing more eurocentric features whereas i'm like very olive as a kid i was extremely brown very dark eyes dark hair so it really was just more centered around how he identified and that shaped how how i identified yeah one of the questions i ask a lot of guests is when did you first realize you were a minority um I've always known that I was other since I was growing up. Um, The reason being that, so growing up, because I grew up where and how I did. So I grew up in, you know, like I said, I stopped seeing my biological father when I was like 11 and I was raised in a Jewish and then a black home. Um, It was always made very clear to me by white people that I was other because they'd constantly ask questions like, what are you? Where are you from? Which white people don't ask white people. That's just not a question Mm -hmm. that they usually ask. Um, And, all my friends who growing up have always been POC had always told other white people like, yeah, she's not white, but they never knew what I was. Or they'd say, Oh, she's Israeli. It was always very clear to me that I was other. I've never been um, coded as white or even like as American. There's always been this, what are you, where are you from? So there's always like a constant othering by people. Um, Even like before I met my husband, just dating, there was always wow, you're so exotic. Where are you from? It's just, always, that's just always been my experience. Hmm. Yeah. So you've mentioned that you have Ashkenazi as well as Mizrahi and I think Bukharan Jewish mm-hmm. heritage. Yeah. Do you experience any tension between your Ashkenazi and Mizrahi identities? Um, I do because not necessarily my mom's family specifically at all. Um, but growing up, I've talked about this as well on Instagram. My 
biological father had always or had always been very clear about the Ashkenazi elite or the Ashkenazim being looked at as better than us or being superior and looking at us as inferior. I learned about the Yemenite children's affair at six years old, that the Ashkenazim elite had kidnapped um, Mizrahi children at the inception of Israel. Like these are all things that my father, as proud as he as he was to be Israeli, was extremely proud to be, you know, Mizrahi or Sephardic, however you want to say it. Um, and a lot of, I think the trauma that he had growing up at that time, you know, um, in the 50s, 60s, during when there was like the highest tensions between Mizrahi and Ashkenazi in Israel, really kind of came through on how he would talk about my mom's family. So like, mm. even when we decided, like, so we're estranged, we don't talk anymore. But even when, when, when I was finally like cutting him off for the last time because of other reasons, he made it very clear, like, well, then go, go be with your Ashkenazi family because he knew how he, I think he knew how it felt to sit in a room full of very beautiful people. My mom's family, they're beautiful, but don't look anything like them. I mean, looking back on like pictures from my childhood, I have like me and my cousins and they're all, I have freckles, but that's the only thing we have in common, right? They all have like reddish hair and beautiful light green eyes and freckles and very fair skin. And as a kid, I was very brown. And so people would literally ask my mother if I was adopted. So mm. I think he knew on some level that I didn't, as much as I loved my mom's family, there was parts of me that don't identify with them and never felt like I belonged. So that tension, it's not something my mom's family created, but it's definitely something that my father talked about. Um, and again, even now to this day, because of how I'm treated online, I'm definitely treated differently because I'm Mizrahi. That's something that's been made very obvious by like the words people use to talk about me or talk to me. Oh, like so, what? Um, so if I actually made a post on this yeah, uh, yesterday, it's actually on mm. Friday. So it's actually up. And I talked about how there's a certain kind of misogyny that I experienced that is very specific to historically how Mizrahi women have been treated by their Ashkenazi counterparts. And when I say Ashkenazi, I'm talking about non-Black Ashkenazi, right? Mm -hmm. um, there's actually a very famous Mizrahi activist named Vicky Sharon who talks about, in the 70s, she passed away now, but she talks about uh, Mizrahi feminism and how it differs because we experience misogyny and discrimination from Ashkenazi women. Um, and the language is very coded. So for example, I will have like the same people online delivering a message very similar to me, or sometimes they've even stolen my work. And yet I'm called angry and aggressive oh. and hostile and they're passionate and outspoken and driven. Um, and, you know, I, I last week or two weeks ago, someone DM'd me and was like, you're not a real Jew. I don't know if I can mm. curse in Arabic on this, but they were like, you're not a real Jew. You look like one of those Sharmutas in Tel Aviv. And that is extremely, um, extremely like, like someone DM'd me right after I shared it and was like, that is exactly how they talk about us in Israel as Mizrahi women. They call us Sharmutas. Like that is actually someone DM'd me because they were so upset because it's something they experienced growing up by Ashkenazi women. What does that term mean? Uh, basically, it means like whore in mm -hmm. Arabic. Um, mm -hmm. And I was like, what the, what? And I and I definitely know that a lot of the, the pushback and harassment I get is also because of my proximity to blackness because of my children, my husband, my the father that raised me, not my biological father. So I know people definitely 
um, are anti-Black. And that's another reason that they talk about me the way they do. But it's definitely something that I've experienced. I've been called the barbarian. I've been told that I'm um, intel less intelligent because I'm Israeli. I've gotten a lot of DMs over the last four years that have really shown me that um, non-Black Ashkenazi Jews, especially those that are white functioning, um, but non-Black Ashkenazi really have, um, as a community, work to do as far as how Mizrahi Jews and Sephardic Jews and really all Jews that are not Ashkenazi or that are Ashkenazim and Jews of color or black are treated um, because it's so much Eurocentricity and Orientalism. And it, it it comes from, I've actually talked about this as well. It does come from their own forced assimilation in Europe, right? Because at one point Jews were Hebrews, they were Asiatics and they were oppressed in Europe for being other. So at some at some point, it's normal for people to try to blend in for safety. But I think a lot of it became so internalized that we now see how that is treated when we're told like Arabic or Ladino is not a real Jewish language or our foods are not really Jewish, but they're actually Arab. But that's not true. Right. Um, so it, I think it's a super complex topic. And, you know, people get upset and they're like, oh, you hate Ashkenazim. And I'm like, I am Ashkenazi. Like, so mm. don't, it's not that I, I don't hate them. Of course not. But there's certain power dynamics, in my opinion, that are really important to address if we ever want to like decolonize and unwhitewash our history. And one of those is ripping the bandaid off and talking about the really tough, complex history between non-Black Ashkenazi Jews and Mizrahi, Sephardi, et cetera, whether in Israel or America or wherever. Um, so it's something that I definitely focus my work around. Yeah. So for folks, I'm not even sure I'm that familiar with it. For folks who don't know that much about the tension between Ashkenazi Jews and Mizrahi Jews and maybe Sephardi Jews, could you give a little bit of background on, on like, where does that come from? Where does that, um, it sounds almost like racism and discrimination. Oh, yeah from white functioning Jews who are from Eastern Europe mm -hmm. or Western Europe, where does that kind of, um, you know, anger and negative attitudes come from against Jews who are from Arabic nations or, uh, you know, the Spanish region? So I definitely believe that it comes from um, assimil forced assimilation in Europe um, because you know, you live there and you're told that you're being other is wrong. So you just like in America, right, you try to assimilate to fit in or be or be safe. Um, however, what happens is or what happened is when, you know, Israel was reestablished um, and Mizrahi Jews started to come in flux. Right. So 850,000 of us for many of us do escaping, you know, persecution, anti-Semitism, um, that Orientalist and Eurocentric attitude was pushed in many ways. So um, there's actually an amazing documentary um, by Vicky Sharon, and it actually goes over the history of Jews, um, of Mizrahi Jews, and it goes over the history of those complex um, power dynamics. And it's actually how the Israeli Black Panthers was formed. It was um, basically Mizrahi Jews in Israel saw the Black Panthers in America and was inspired by what they were fighting for and their and basically a and felt that they saw themselves in that struggle. Um, because so, for example, in the 60s and 70s in Israel, there was a slur used that was similar to like the N-word in America that was mm -hmm. 
for black Jews and Mizrahi Jews. Um, something my father told me at a very young age as well. I can't remember the word right now and I wouldn't want to say it anyway. But so there's a very long and complex history there. Um, even just when, you know, like how Mizrahi Jews discussed when they came and the, the you know, refugee camps they were put in were very different than Ashkenazi. Um, access to housing, um, schooling, um, things like that. Even now to this day, there are very vast differences in representation as far as government, academia, et cetera. Um, so it's something that it's, it's very complex, probably way more than we could cover on a podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, the name of the documentary though is called Breaking the Wall. Um, it's mm-hmm. on my Instagram, in my link tree, or you can Google it. It's completely free. It's like an hour long and it's, it's honestly incredible and absolutely inspiring. For me, it, it opened my eyes to a lot of the things that I grew up hearing from my biological father and understanding like where his hurt was coming from um, and where his pain was coming from as well. So, you know, there was actually uh, in the seventies, there was even like protests and rallies, um, thousands of people that showed up to protest the discriminatory policies against Sephardi and Mizrahi Jews. Um, there's, it's just a lot of a lot of complex history that makes it really hard, I think, for people to understand that, you know, my family can be very thankful and grateful and, and love Israel and be proud to be Israeli, but we can still talk about, you know, the, the things that happened as well um, that have caused a lot of pain. So I think it's really, really important um, that people really read up on the history and understand it's not an attack on anyone, but in order for us to do better as a community, and if we expect people to understand us, we have to be willing to understand each other as well. And that means talking about these really complicated things. Yeah, and it sounds like so much of this comes from the history of Israel becoming a nation. Do you feel like those same conflicts show up in the American Jewish world? And are American Jews aware of you know, this, this background and this tension between the communities in Israel? Are they aware of the history? I don't think most are. So the, ten, the, the, infram, the, yeah, the complex history in Israel is a little bit different than America. However, with that said, what we have here is something that someone coined this word, right? Ashkenazi normativity, where the default of Jews and Judaism is constantly Ashkenazi culture and a specific non, non-Black, white-functioning looking Jew when there are actually many Ashkenazi of color, Black Ashkenazim as well. And those same Jews are questioned when they go to synagogue if they really belong there. Those same Jews are asked to prove that they are actually Jewish. So it has crossed over from the Orientalism and things like that that are still rooted in it. And it is also has been kind of, I think, mixed in with regular... Um, American ideas of like, you know, the closer to white, the mm. better, you know, if for lack of a better word, um, you know, it's so actual normativity is harmful in many ways. It, it isn't just that it has colorism and or, you know, Eurocentricity and Orientalism. It also has the um, implication that Ashkenazi culture is the default Jewish culture. Now, there is more Ashkenazi in America, so that does make sense that people would know more. But that's why we have to make sure that we're also talking about all Jews and all Jews' experiences, um, whether here, you know, Israel, uh, East Asia, South Asia, um, you know, Africa, it doesn't matter where. We have to make sure that we're talking about all Israeli, I mean, excuse me, all Jewish history. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, so I have heard someone say, well, Ashkenormativity is white supremacy. That's obviously not true. This is an intercommunity discussion. Of course, you know, every community has colorism and anti-blackness that is separate from Ashkenormativity as well, even if though they can be connected. You know what I mean? So even if Ashkenormativity didn't exist, there's still going to be anti-blackness because even Mizrahi Jews and Jews of color can be anti-black. Um, I think it's really important to distinguish that Ashkenormativity is very specific in how it functions. And it really just others anyone who is not Ashkenazi or who doesn't fit the specific stereotype of what an Ashkenazi Jew should look like. Um, mm-hmm. That's something I've been asked a lot in DMs to really remind people of when I talk about Ashkenormativity is how it also harms Ashkenazim that are POC and Black because they are often erased from the Ashkenazi narrative as well. Right. Yeah, so it sounds like you've talked about growing up with a mom who really saw herself as secular and a biological dad who saw himself as a Israeli mm-hmm. and hearing a lot about, you know, this history of political struggle as a Mizrahi Jew and the tension between the two. But one of the things that has really drawn me to your Instagram is that it spends time showcasing beauty in Jewish culture and kind of the badassery of Jews past and present. Have you always had that kind of confidence and pride in your Jewishness or is it something you had to find? No, I absolutely had to find it. Um, I've, like I said, I've always been othered, but I was pretty, the only people that ever knew I was Jewish was fellow Israelis. Like I could walk into a mall and you know how you have those like Israeli little booths selling this Dead Sea salt? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Every, every mall has them, every state, right? Um, especially on the West Coast and the East Coast. If I walk by one of them, literally, they'll stop me and start talking to me in Hebrew. Automatically, they know I'm Israeli. It's like they can find me no matter where I am. But if I'm in a space that's not Israeli, people just assume that I'm kind of other, but they don't know what. And so I've always just ran with that growing up because I really didn't have any pride in being Jewish. Um, Because when people found out I was Jewish, I've had pennies thrown at me. My last name would get made fun of. And I just heard so many jokes. So it was something that I definitely kept to myself, so to speak. Um, And because I was disconnected from my biological father, I really tried to push away from it as well because it was hard to identify with something that I felt was most strongly with him because my mom Mm. owed secular. Um, So when he and I reconnected and he started to tell me the stories of my Safta and Saba and everything they went through in Syria and in Uzbekistan and coming to Israel, my whole perception changed. Like, I was just like, oh my God, like I am badass. Like I come from like bad, like, holy, I was just like, wow. Like my, my Safta is amazing. Like my, my Saba is literally, uh, I mean, he's a hero. He is honored like in the Palmach Museum in Israel. Like I felt such pride and I've always pushed it more to being Israeli, but now it's definitely about being Jewish because I understand how that is, a core part of who they are and why they fought the way they did to simply exist was because they were Jews um, and how they were persecuted and had to hide and all that. So I didn't find that strength myself till I was in my thirties, to be honest. Um, And it was like a, it was really like an awakening, so to speak. Um, Mm -hmm. I stopped wearing concealer. I stopped wearing a foundation that was two colors too light for me. Um, I stopped waxing my 
you know, like waxing my eyebrows off. I uh, stopped waxing my face. I used to wax like any hair on my face besides my brows, like was off. I was just so embarrassed of like my very Semitic, very Mizrahi features. And then once I learned how they fought just to exist, I was like, wow, like I'm a miracle. Just being here, I'm, my existence is a miracle. Um, because without my grandparents fighting to survive, I wouldn't have been born. So it was definitely a journey and a struggle for me, but it's been a very beautiful one that I'm glad I was able to come into before, you know, it was too late. Yeah. So was this kind of just one conversation you had with your grandparents or did you kind of start talking to them and unraveling their stories of it was, uh, um, escaping persecution? It was actually my, my father. So my Abba, my biological father, he actually sent me their stories that were written or, you know, they said, and then someone wrote it for them. Right. So it was him explaining to me. And then he was like, you know what, we should do a DNA test. And I was like, well, I'm already doing one. Cause I have to get the health labs for my doctor. I, I'm not going to do the ancestry though. And he's like, no, 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 do it. I was just doing it because they were looking for some kind of genetic mutation and he was right. like, the ancestry. And I'm like, okay, fine, whatever. So I did the ancestry and then he did the ancestry and then more stories started coming. And it was all, it's all there in my DNA test. Like all the stories he tells, tells me are literally in my test, which was wild to me. Um, so I, stories of like family from different parts of the globe. So like Bukharan Jews or Jews who ended up in Uzbekistan because they were exiled from Persia, but they originally came from Judea, right? Like all Jews. But I actually have a very heavy, heavy majority Persian DNA, like heavy, mm. no use, not Uzbekistan at all, but Persian. Um, my grandfather's from Aleppo and his, his family had been there as long as we have known, Right. Well, at one point, Syria, Iraq, that was all just one little area. Right. There was no borders. I literally my DNA comes up as Mesopotamia, like mm -hmm. every, all the stories that he was telling, we were seeing it. And then it was just all it was more like a confirmation. Um, and then I just started asking more questions and more questions. And it was just one of those things where like. I once I learned like, you know, what my great grandmother went through to get my grandmother to Israel and how she escaped with her husband and other children by foot at nine months pregnant. And then they lived in Afghanistan for two years, you know, um, just all these things. I, I remember reading it over and over with my husband and he's like, this is like a movie. And I was like, mm -hmm. oh, I mean, it really is like a movie. How could you not be proud of that? Like, I mean, that's. Yeah. And I think that's partially another reason why. I, besides how I look and how I present, why I identify so strongly with my Mizrahi side or my Bukharan side is because I know the stories, even if it's just, you know, non-Jewish people and non-Black people are very fortunate to know, be able to like trace back like 20 generations. Like I remember I worked with someone who was able to literally go back to like this 1200s and I was like yeah that would never happen for us because we didn't have birth certificates we didn't have anything in in the right. middle right as Jews but at least I know where my great-grandparents came from that for me was so much history right there whereas my Ashkenazi family all I know is in like 1910 they came here from Ellis you know through Ellis Island and one side left Russia, one side left Hungary, and we had a lot of family die in the Shoah. That's all I know. I don't know anything else. So I think that 
once I also realized that it's actually funny that I hardly know anything about my Ashkenazi side. I know so much about my Mizrahi Bukharan side, but yet our community is so hyper-focused on Ashkenazi culture. It made me realize that I was, I had a very unique opportunity, which was to shed light on a side of our community that no one ever talks about. Um, and I think that's, that's why, fascinating. Yeah. Because most people are like, wait, it's the other way around. Usually everyone knows about their Ashka. And I'm like, I don't know anything. Yeah, I, I feel that way is like, I've talked to a couple of Ashkenazi Jews who have had that similar experience of wanting some kind of family story, family history beyond just like, well, we escaped uh, the pogroms. We showed up in America. Here we are. And I think a lot of Ashkenazi Jews are are really looking for like more of that color that you can mm-hmm. get of like, here's how we lived before Israel, before the Shoah. Mm-hmm. And it's sometimes I think we do look to Mizrahi Jews as like, Oh, can you share something? Like that sounds really cool that you have like, like an example is you posted something about Mizrahi, like footwear, like different shoes that, mm-hmm. um, that are traditionally worn or were worn by a lot of Mizrahi Jews living in the diaspora before Israel. Like, Mm -hmm. that's something really cool. I don't know what kind of shoes people wore before they emigrated. Um, It just adds, like, so much more definition to their stories, to our history. Absolutely. Because a lot of the erasure of Mizrahi and Sephardic Jews in the Middle East um, is not just within our community, but outside of our community, saying... We were never oppressed. Everything was hunky-dory. We lived in peace. We were considered Arabs, which none of that is true. Like the first thing is that people don't realize it's not an insult to say we're not Arab. It's it's not. It is a fact that there are more than the ethnic groups that people realize in West Asia. So Arab is an ethnic group, not just a linguistic group. And so there are Arabs, there are Kurds, Palestinians are actually separate from Arabs. And there are Jews who are one of the oldest ethnic groups. But because we were um, such a small percentage, as well as, you know, we lived as dimmies, which meant we basically lived as second class citizens, our history has been written for us. So to me, it's such a unique opportunity to tell the stories, whether it's stories of persecution, oppression or not, like, hey, we didn't steal hummus or or baklava. These are foods that my family has been eating forever because we culture, because we live side by side. That's just how, you know, that's how it is, right? But I think people really don't understand that West Asia, the Middle East, however you want to call it, is made up of so many diverse ethnic groups that yes, we all do speak Arabic and we all do, you know, share parts of culture, but we also have very unique, beautiful parts that are separate from each other. And unfortunately, Americans specifically really don't understand that we can be Middle Eastern Jews or Mizrahi Jews and not be Arab, that we are our own group, even if we share parts of, you know, Arab culture. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that for me has been a really big thing because for a while I did identify as an Arab Jew. Um, And then I kept reading and I kept reading and I was like, wait a second, forget politics, right? This isn't about politics. That's actually a misnomer unless you're half Arab and half Jew because being a Jew is an ethno religion. It's an ethnic group. So is Arab. Um, mm. And so they just, existed in the same part of the world, but exactly. they were two separate groups. Yeah. Right. You have Arab Muslims and you have Arab Christians. Now you can have an Arab Jew, except Jew is different than Muslim or Christian because it's not just a religion. So that's where. Yeah. I wanted to ask about that. that. 
Yeah. Sorry. No, it's okay. So there was a recent article in Hey Alma titled The Problem with the Term Ethnic Jew. And it was a pretty controversial article. I was one of the people very upset by that article. Yeah, I saw you were one of the first people to comment on it. So can you talk about your response um, and, you know, the term ethnic Jew? So let me first preface this with me identifying as an ethnic Jew does not change, negate, or degrade the validity of anyone who has converted to Judaism. That is a very beautiful journey, a very sacred one. Um, And if anyone knows about conversion, it is a hard process. It is not like converting to another religion. It is a hard process. So if you're a Jew, you're a Jew. That's it. Um, However, I think that it's really important that people understand that there are people who do not identify with religion, period. They don't identify with religious, um, you know, rules, or they don't identify just with the word, or they practice other religions because they grew up that way. However, as your ethnicity, meaning your ancestry, your culture, all of that, it is still extremely valid. Um, And so there was a point in time before this article came out where someone was telling Jews like myself and other ethnic Jews that we had to stop talking about our identity as an ethnicity because it was um, inappropriate. So I actually wrote something. I'm going to just read a couple of the points mm-hmm. off. I think it tackles it beautifully, right? So the first thing is that Judaism is an ethno-religion. So in modern terms, it's a nation or tribe. So if you're born Jewish, even if you practice Islam or Buddhism or you're atheist, you're still a Jew. That doesn't change, right? Um, there are many Jews like myself and many others who have been disconnected from Judaism as far as, you know, religion, et cetera, due to trauma and abuse, whether that's because of a parent or whether that's because of forced conversion, perhaps there are many Mm -hmm. Jews in, in, you know, the Middle East who don't even know they're Jews because of forced conversion. Mm, Um, And in the Sephardic community too. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Like conversos. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, would you tell someone that they're not really Jewish because their family grew up celebrate, you know, practicing something else no because that's their trauma like they are still a Sephardic they are still a Jew they just grew up understanding their relationship with God very differently and I think that's the other thing people have to realize is our relationship with God Hashem whatever you want to say is very personal um it's not something that you can tell someone how to relate to or how to believe versus being a Jew for me is all about my culture and my history as as an individual and as a tribe. Um, So I I took extreme offense to, you know, implying that. Um, Another thing is that there are many interfaith families that exist. And there are families that if one person didn't have a very strong tie to their religion, the other one did, they might still culturally be Jewish and ethnically be Jewish, but they may go to church. That's just a reality of the world we live in, that there are mixed families. and you have a personal, ex- do you have a personal experience with that? Um, my, so my stepfather, my father growing up, um, not Jewish, uh, black. So very like American, um, I, uh, holidays like Easter, Christmas, things like that. That's how I grew up. I grew up celebrating Christmas. I never had a menorah. Okay. Mm-hmm. We, we had Christmas, we had Sunday dinner. We didn't have Shabbat dinner. Um, that doesn't, that didn't change the fact that I knew who I was ethnically. You know what I'm saying? But mm-hmm. my my joy as a kid, it, my memories aren't tied to Jewish traditions. They're tied to 
Christmas. And even though people say Christmas is a Christian holiday, which it is, it still is also a very kind of secular holiday for America at this point. Um, Lots of people celebrate Christmas. So I just think it's important to make space for people whose families look blended or look different Mm -hmm. than yours. Um, Another thing I think it's important to realize is people have some, you know, severe trauma. There are many people whose families were persecuted and massacred for being ethnically Jewish, for their Jewish blood. Denying that to them because it's not how you connect to your Judaism is super inappropriate. And it erases a lot of intergenerational trauma. Um, So personally, I think that's, you know, inappropriate as well. And there's also a lot of people, and I actually know someone personally who grew up Jewish, um, they're Sephardic, um, Sephardic and Black, and they actually stopped going to synagogue and started to uh, practice Messianic Judaism because the anti-Blackness in their synagogue was so violent and so mm. bad. That is no one's place. That, the, my thing should be, your issue should not be with them practicing what they practice. Your issue should be with the fact that they didn't feel welcome in their community. That's what you should be focusing on. Um, so should we use the term ethnic Jew to degrade or berate someone whose Judaism is different? No, of course not. The same way that Jews who say, oh, well, you're not really Jewish because your father's a Jew. That is just as inappropriate. Patrilineal Jews are Jews, period. Um, so no one should use their connection to their Jewishness or Judaism to degrade somebody else's connection. And that's why that article for me was such a problem. Um, it also had a very clickbaity kind of title, but I feel like, if you are strong in your identity, you don't need to diminish somebody else's connection. That sounds to me like your own insecurity. Um, I personally learn so much from people who have converted to Judaism and they teach me so much about the Torah and thing, and holidays, things that I wouldn't know. And I teach them about my history and things Mm -hmm. that they might not know and so that's the relationships that we should have to each other is to teach each other and admire like our differences and how we connect to the Jewish community and that's going to just bring it make it stronger but all this you know your mother is not Jewish you're not Jewish you know you're a convert you're not Jewish oh you don't practice you're not Jewish that is just to me we're destroying ourselves like we talk about anti-Semites but we're doing the exact same thing intercommunally which is actually even worse right Um, yeah yeah on that point, unless do you have another? No, no, no. Another point. Okay. No. Yeah, that was just such a great segue to another category of your posts that really speaks to me. Are your writings about Jewish joy and beauty as an antidote to anti-Semitism and assimilation? Yes. You've written celebrating your Jewishness is the opposite of assimilation, and our identities should not only be trauma and anti-Semitism mm-hmm. focused. When when we do that, they win. Yep. And I totally agree with that. Where do you find beauty in your Jewish identity? So for a very long time, I struggled with body image. Um, I was in a very abusive relationship before I met my husband that was very centered around my Semitic features, me being a dumb Jew. These are all things that this person actually said. Um And I struggled just for so long with my face, like just my face, like my under eyes and my brows. And as I started to fill my feed with more Mizrahi women, I realized, wait a second, I look just like my great grandmother. Like, hold on a Mm. second. I have her eyes. I have this one's nose. And I was like, these features that are too strong 
for some are they are strong and that's why it intimidates them because it doesn't blend into you know whatever little blanket they want to just like put us all under to all look the same and I started to push back and just embrace my features once I did that that was like a really big thing for me I was only I was 33 34 at the time so I still was like I mean I was an adult and I was just learning um how to accept myself basically and then from there I realized that artwork and prayers and candles these things are just so beautiful and I spent a lot of time fighting anti-semitism online when I had my former page that unfortunately got taken down by anti-semites um Mm. And I realized that I was shaping who I was based on how other people perceive me. And that's just not that to me, that's like the opposite of pride, right? That I don't need to shape how I feel or connect to being a Jew based on how other people talk about me or as an Israeli or whatever it is. Um, You know, like people want to make fun of Ashkenazi culture, let them. I love kafilta fish. I love karshavanikis. I love chopped liver. Like these are things that I grew up eating and when I close my eyes and I and I smell, you know, can feel like the smell and the texture, I have such good memories tied to those foods. Even though my mom was not outwardly proudly Jewish, our foods were always very Jewish. So maybe for my mom's family, that's how she connected. That's how they showed pride was in the foods that we ate, right? Um, language, you know, artwork that my my biological father always had beautiful Israeli artwork all over the walls and chamsas and things like that. So I just realized that everyone connects in their own way, but allowing people who hate us to define how we feel about ourselves, that they're actually, we're like letting them win. We're actually letting them win because now they are controlling your relationship with your community, which is what they want because they want you to push back be like, you know what, forget it, maybe assimilate some more, whatever it is. Um, And I realized that a lot of people online, especially these younger people who are new to Instagram, new to social media, and are new to Jewstagram or the Jewish Mm -hmm. community, we're doing that. They are, everything is about anti-Semitism and everything is about the conflict and everything is, and I'm like, half of you don't have any connection to that experience. Half of you live here. Why are you letting other people dictate how you connect to who you are? Mm-hmm. I just don't think, one, it's not healthy. Like as a mother and an almost 40 year old woman, like it's not healthy. This is not a healthy thing to do. Um, it's like, you know, I'm trying to think. It's like if you're spending all of your hours and breath and energy and every conversation you have is about anti-Semitism. Right. Then all of every moment that you're connecting to your Jewish identity is around anti-Semitism or exactly. around assimilation. Right. Exactly. And I I refuse to allow cis men to dictate how I feel as a woman through their misogyny. As a chronically ill person, I refuse to allow ableists to constantly make me feel like I have to prove myself to them. Like you see, it's the same thing with any part of my identity. Like I'm chronically ill. That is a big, big part of my identity, right? It's just something I deal with every day. If I went online and read the things that people said about people who are chronically ill and all the time, I would probably end up hating myself and feeling like I have to prove myself as worthy. And I feel like that's what a lot of us tend to do when we get caught up in fighting anti-Semitism. Like, yes, we should fight anti-Semitism, but we should not be like 
don't seek out every person that's ever said something anti-Semitic and feel like it's your duty to attack them or, or fight them and defend yourself because now they took your joy away. So they won. Mm-hmm. They ultimately won. Do you have any advice for folks who don't feel comfortable with their Jewish identities and who aren't sure how to find their joy in being Jewish? I would say it has to be personal. So if it's discreet and it's not public, that's okay. Not everyone needs to have an Instagram and post selfies. My selfies started because my page originally started as a makeup page. And I started talking about my dark under eyes. And someone was like, are you Middle Eastern? And it spiraled into this thing where people were like, there's no representation of Mizrahi Jews. And for me, that was how I was able to reclaim my joy. For someone else, it might look like reading. It might be tracing their family tree. It might be just cooking recipes that have been passed down. You know, like for me, when I make I make hummus and I make falafel from scratch, I can feel my safta's energy like surround me. I, I can feel her in the kitchen. When I light the Shabbat candles, even if my kids are bickering, which happens all the time, by the way, like no one has a perfect spot. I wish we would stop that idea. My kids are like bickering and I'm like, shush, and I'm lighting the candles and I cover my hair. I can feel her almost holding me in her warmth because I remember her lighting the candles. It's going to be a personal thing for everybody. And if it just means waking up and making baklava from scratch or making, you know, homemade gefilte fish or borscht, then just do that. Like if it's something that makes you feel warm inside, that's enough. It doesn't have to be anything I can see or someone else can see. It doesn't have to be something you Instagram. It doesn't have to be some radical thing like, oh, I've become orthodox and I used to be atheist. Like you don't have to go to any extreme. You have to find what works for you. Like for me, our house is very weird. Like, so we do Shabbat every Friday but I'm the only one that puts my phone away. My phone is off for 24 hours, but we watch movies till two in the morning. That's just how we do Shabbat. And for me, it's not about my connection to God on Shabbat. It's actually about my connection to our tribe my and my grandparents. And it's my way of honoring them and their struggles, their, their perseverance. So like, Maybe that's not right for some people, but it gives me joy. And that's the only thing that matters. So I would say, don't think about what other people think is appropriate. Do what makes you feel good. Wonderful. I love that advice. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Yasmin, for coming on the podcast. It was such a wonderful experience talking with you. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for listening all the way to the end. You can check out the show notes for this episode to find links to Yasmin's Instagram and all of the media we mentioned. As a reminder, there will be no episode in the next couple of months as we take a summer break. But make sure you're subscribed to get the next episode as soon as it's released in the fall. This episode was produced by me, Clarissa Marks, with intro music by Gilly Cuddy, and outgoing music by Ketza. You can support the show by sharing it with a friend or by adding a review to Apple Podcasts. Here's how to do that. The link to Apple Podcasts is in the show notes, so you can click on that and then scroll all the way to the bottom, past all of the episodes, to add a five-star rating and write a review. If you write something nice, I might just read it on the air. 
You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Clarissa R. Marks and check out the podcast online home at onwandering.co. That's onwandering.co. Have a wonderful summer and see you in the fall. <laughs>